turn uh, in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians as we continue in our sermon series on the book of Ephesians. Well, we live in a time that is unlike any other. Now, really, everyone throughout human history could say that they live in a time unlike any other. But there really are some truly unique things about our time. In this very moment, you could know nearly everything that's happening in the world right now. You could get on Twitter right now and find out about glorious things taking place across the globe. I don't encourage you to get on Twitter right now, but you could. And you could also learn both about the glorious things taking place throughout the world and also the immense suffering taking place across the globe. Now, this has some really positive benefits. We are more aware and can be more involved in relieving the suffering of people around the globe. In Afghanistan right now, or in Palestine, or in Northern Africa, or in Chicago, or L.A., or Southeast Asia, wherever there is suffering people, we could know about it and do something about it. Sometimes that leads to positive change, but it can also lead to negative things. One of which is that we think being aware is the same as being active. Like knowing about suffering does something to alleviate it. So taking action steps is tweeting or retweeting something. This is what I like to call performative activism. Like as long as my profile picture or timeline says Black Lives Matter, I don't actually have to do anything to love my black neighbors. As long as I say it. As long as I say, welcome refugees, I don't have to give any money or actually physically welcome any refugees. As long as I declare that sex trafficking is bad, I don't have to change anything about my lifestyle or habits that might contribute to it. The other danger of this is that we might forget God in the midst of local and global struggle. This can happen in two ways. One, we can just be too depressed at the state of the world and forget that God is at work because we know so much suffering. No one in human history has been able to see the amount of suffering that we're able to see in an instant except for the Lord. And we are not him and can't handle it. It can be debilitating and overwhelming. The world seems too far gone. It's impossible to save. And you get this empathy fatigue That is debilitating. The other way we forget God is to think, actually, if we would just come up with the right set of policies, the right amount of money and sacrifice, we can make things right in the world. How are we going to avoid these kinds of errors? And what does it mean for you individually and for us as a church to see Muncie and the world transformed? Well, over the next few weeks, I want us to come back to this question over and over again, because we're going to look at what our vision is as a church. And our vision as a church seeks to answer this question. What are we going to do to address the brokenness of our city and the world around us? And so over the summer, we have been walking through the book of Ephesians. And what I want to do before we continue and end the book of Ephesians is take a little pause and look at our vision statement 
Seeking to be a diverse people saved by Jesus, centered on Jesus, and sent by Jesus. And I want to look at those three three phrases, uh, saved by Jesus, centered on Jesus, and sent by Jesus, and see where, where do we come up with that as a vision, and how do we see that in the book of Ephesians? And so this is going to be both summary of where we've been all summer, and what is our vision as a church? How do we move forward together as a church So if you're brand new to City Hope or you've been coming for a little time, this is a great opportunity to learn, hey, this is where we, this is our heartbeat. This is the thing we're going to always come back to and always talk about and keep focusing on. And if you've been here for a while and you've heard me say every single week that we're seeking to be a diverse people saved by Jesus, centered on Jesus, and sent by Jesus, here's the thing. You need to hear it again because we forget all the time. We forget so easily, particularly when we are so overwhelmed by brokenness, where our vision is and where our mission is and how do I contribute to that? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, the question I asked about how we transform the world and and our city and avoid these errors seems to be focusing on the sent part of that mission statement. But how we answer that question And how we get there needs to be informed by the other parts. Otherwise, we're going to step right into those errors. The way we avoid those errors, the way we have power for mission, and the way we do this thing that we're trying to do here has to start with God. Has to start with who we are and what God has done. And so today, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians, and we're going to really focus in on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 to really focus in on what does it mean to be a diverse people saved by Jesus. This uh, slide change thing isn't working, so I'm going to need you to step up, Kat. Okay, you got it. I believe in you. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So this morning, we're going to ask this question, why do we seek to be a diverse people saved by Jesus? And we're going to try and answer this from this section of Ephesians, which is so memorable and important for us and something I'm sure if you have been walking with Jesus for any length of time, you have spent time in this passage. Why do we seek to be a diverse people saved by Jesus? Can you go back to that uh, scripture there? Right, okay. So, but God is so rich in mercy. We're going to focus a lot on this phrase, but God, because it's one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. But to, to do so, we need to understand who is God. One of the things that we've been doing as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians is unpacking what it means that God is triune. What does the Trinity mean? So, will you throw up that diagram for me? All right, this is not the Illuminati, guys. This is a diagram on the Trinity, okay? So, no, like, definitely don't get on Twitter now and start posting about the Illuminati that I'm jumping into. No, this is a, this is a description of the Trinity. The Trinity is this complex and mysterious concept, this theological concept that is really trying to describe. It's not something that is invented by theologians, but something that is simply trying to describe what we see in the Scriptures. What we see very clearly displayed throughout all of Scripture. 
And it's that we believe that there is one God in three persons. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Spirit is God. We see these three persons show up, uh, for instance, in Jesus' baptism. In which Jesus is baptized, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and he is praying to the Father. Now Jesus is worshipped by his disciples. And so Jesus, and, and Jesus in his teaching, declares himself to be God himself. And yet he's praying to the Father and the Spirit shows up. There's this mysterious way in which God is present in three persons. And so we see that they are all God. Now what we also see is that the Father is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. And the Son is not the Spirit or the Father. They are distinct. They are individual persons. There is one God and there are three persons. They are not three manifestations or modes that show up at different times, like the Father's present here, and then when the Father disappears, the Son shows up. No, they are all together persons who are all there but are distinct, and they are one God. They're not like maybe some uh, descriptions you've heard of the Trinity before is like water, ice, and steam. Well, it's, it's not really like that because no one molecule of water can be all three at the same time. There's really nothing, there's no analogy. Anytime we try and come up with an analogy, it's not going to happen because there's nothing like God in all the universe. And we should expect that. That shouldn't trouble us. We should expect that if God is who He says He is in the Scriptures, that there is nothing like Him in all the universe. He is unique. It should blow your mind. You should not be able to wrap your mind around it because he is glorious and we are finite creatures. He exists outside of time. He created time. Of course, he is not bound by the same things that you and I are bound by. So there's no analogy that is perfect because of how God is unlike us. And yet, we are made in his image with characteristics like him. And so there are ways in which we see this come out. For instance, we see this come out in that we love one another. Love, particularly self-sacrificial love, is utterly unique in the world. Why do we do that? Because we're like God. Because we're made in his image. And to be loving means you need to have an object for your love. And if God has existed for all eternity without creation, it means he has to be a trinity in order for there to be love. Because who was he loving when he was all by himself? Except for the persons of the trinity loving one another in happy union together. This is a mysterious thing. Now the question is, if God is triune, why does our mission statement focus on Jesus? Why do we say saved by Jesus, centered on Jesus, and sent by Jesus? Why not say saved by the triune God, centered on the triune God, and sent by the triune God? Why this focus on Jesus? Well, John 16, 12 through 15 says this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. If you've been around City Hope for a while, you know I come back here often. This is like my favorite section of scripture. 
John 15 through 17. This is like the most intimate time that Jesus has with his disciples, and he's teaching them, preparing them for his departure. He's, a, he's about to die on the cross and be resurrected and then go to the Father, be, ascend into heaven. And so this is a very intimate time of teaching, and we get some incredible truths here. But Jesus says this, there's so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Again, right? The spirit is a person, not a mysterious force. This is not like Star Wars. This is not the force, right? This is a person. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Do you see how this works here? In the mystery of the Trinity, the Father has given everything to the Son. And the Son will give everything to us through the Spirit. The Spirit is not going to speak on His own, but only what the Son has given Him to say. And the Son is only going to give what the Father has already given. And yet the focus here is on the Son. He will bring me glory. If we are going to bring glory to the triune God, if we're going to be in step with the Spirit of God, the only way to be in step with the Spirit of God is to bring glory to Jesus. If you're trying to be spiritual apart from Jesus, you're not in tune with the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God only comes to bring glory to Jesus. So we focus on Jesus because the Father has given everything to Him and the Spirit exists to glorify Him. So we focus on Jesus. Hebrews 1 tells us this, Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. The Son radiates God's own glory. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Right? When Jesus shows up in this section, right, one of the disciples says, show us the Father and it will be enough. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you don't yet know? To see me is to see the Father. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And so we want to focus in on who Jesus is and what he has done. All right, so what has Jesus done? What does Ephesians go on to tell us? It says, he is rich in mercy, right? It said, but God is so rich in mercy. Why focus on mercy right away? Well, well, first we should understand what is mercy. Well, this word in the original language in the Greek is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. There's this version of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And there's a version of the Old Testament written in Greek called the Septuagint. And in that 
version of the Old Testament in Greek, it uses this same word that Paul uses here in Ephesians for mercy in this passage, in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Now, this is a really important passage because this is where God is declaring who he is to Moses. He's showing up in all his glory and allowing Moses to see as he passes by him. And he says, this is who I am. And so when Paul says that God, being rich in mercy, he's thinking, I don't know if he's thinking about this passage in particular, but he's thinking about this refrain that happens all throughout the Old Testament where Yahweh shows up and says, this is who I am. I'm a God of compassion and mercy, which uses that same word. And then it says, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. This word unfailing love here is the same word for very merciful or rich in mercy. It's a very similar phrase to what Paul is using in Ephesians. Rich in mercy. Now, the reason I wanted to come all the way here is because I was uh, texting with Serena earlier this week telling her about where we were going for the message so that she could play in the music. And I said, I'm going to focus on this word, this Hebrew word, has said. And I said, English is just lame. And the reality is that English cannot capture what this word captures, which is why it says unfailing love here and why it says mercy before. The English language just doesn't have a frame of reference for what this word means. So it uses lots of words. Like, if you're going to understand has said, you need like a paragraph. And that's what Paul is keying in on when he says, God being rich in mercy. Carolyn Curtis James, in her commentary on the book of Ruth, says, Has said is driven not by duty or a legal obligation, but by bone deep commitment, a loyal, selfless love that motivates a person to do voluntarily what no one has the right to expect or ask of them. It's loyalty. Love expressed in self-sacrifice, faithfulness, undying devotion, bone-deep commitment. And Paul says God is rich in said. God is rich in this kind of bone-deep commitment. said is the way God describes himself. It is his defining characteristic. Well, if this has said, right, causes you to do voluntarily what no one has the right to expect or to ask of them, what does Paul mean when he says God is rich in the willingness to do what no one has the right to expect or to ask of them? Well, let's go back to Ephesians 2. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. What has God done? He made us alive even when we were dead in sin. Why does God need to be rich in mercy? Because not only can we not uh, ask or uh, be expected that God would save us, we are not even able to ask for it because we're dead in sin. Dead people don't ask for life. They're dead. 
When Paul says dead in sin, what he means is you are unable in and of yourself to save yourself, to come and to ask for mercy. You can't even ask for mercy because you are dead in sin. Sin, any thought, word, or deed against God's will, doing what God has said not to do, and some of you are like, check. I've been pretty good at not doing what God has said, or uh, not doing what God has said not to do, but it's also not doing what God said to do, which is where we all struggle a lot more. We are totally and completely unable to save ourselves. So when a merciful and loving triune God comes into contact with dead people, what, does, what do we need Him to be? Rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Paul has just described in the first part of Ephesians 2 what it means to be dead in sin. That we were continuing to follow Satan. We were continuing to follow our own wicked hearts. We are continuing to go against God. But God. I've tried my hardest to obey, but I always fail. But God. I have done things that I can't even say out loud. That I've never told anyone else. But God. My addictions have overwhelmed me, but God. My failure cannot be measured because it's so great, but God. I have doubted, but God. I have run from Him, but God. But God loved us. God is so rich in mercy. If you think of God, if your conception of God is this tyrant who's just waiting around the corner to catch you in your flaws and condemn you to hell, you have the wrong picture of God. Because when God shows up and says, this is what I'm like, what he says is, I am with bone deep conviction ready to give you what you don't deserve, which is life. I'm ready to forgive. I'm deep in mercy. And that's even more compelling when we think of how glorious he is. He is totally unlike us. It's not because he's like, well, you know, I've done some wrong too. No, it's because he's totally unlike us. He is glorious. Even when angels show up in the scriptures, people fall on their faces as though dead because they are glorious. And they cover their eyes because they cannot even look upon the Lord. He is so glorious. Which is why him saying, the thing that defines me is my unfailing love and faithful mercy to sinners is good news. That's why it's the only news that can Save us. It's why it's the only thing we will talk about every single week. Until the Lord returns or until somehow the Lord ends this church, we will declare that message every single week because it's declaring who God is. But God 
loved us. Now this word us causes us to think about another part of this. Who are we? What does it mean that God has loved us? You see what it says there? This is another way in which English is lame. English just does not have a plural you. It's like one of the biggest, like, like we just need an upgrade, guys. Like there just needs to be a new operating system that comes out that says plural you. Here it is. Y'all, whatever. I don't care what it is. We just need something, right, y'all? The Bible just needs to have y'all all over it because there's almost no singular use in the New Testament. They're very rare. Why is that? Because God is not about saving individuals by themselves. He's after a people. A people. A diverse people. When we say we're seeking to be a diverse people, what we're saying is we're seeking to be the church. Because the church that is not diverse It's not the church according to the New Testament because, I mean, we walk through the book of Acts, right? It's all over the place. And it's right here too. Let's let's continue on in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. If you have ever read Ephesians 2 and you land and you finish at 10 and you're like, ah, God is amazing. Keep reading. He gets better. Keep reading. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Now, context here. Gentiles and Jews are the two main people groups of the Bible. Jews are God's chosen people, ethnic Israel. And Gentiles are everyone else. And, as, and, and Gentiles, right, there's lots of divisions among Gentiles, lots of different people groups, but they're all categorized as Gentiles. They're outside of the covenant people of God. And we saw in the book of Acts, as we were walking through this, and if you want to know more, look up some of the sermons from the book of Acts, that one of the brand new things of the gospel, one of the brand new things of the new covenant is not simply that God has revealed the fullness of the gospel, right? People in the Old Testament were saved by faith, just like people in the New Testament. There's still a covenant mediator. They were just waiting on the promise of it. One of the brand new things of the newness of the new covenant is all people get to come in without becoming Jewish. And this is brand new and causes all sorts of problems, right? So many of the letters throughout the New Testament are dealing with this issue of like, hey, how do we bring in these people who were outsiders, who we didn't like, how do we bring them into the family of God and they don't have to become Jewish culturally? What does that mean? That's the wrestling of the New Testament in so many places. And here's where Paul is really keying in on it here. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. 
Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with God's, all God's holy people. You are member of, members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. What does it mean to be saved by Jesus? It means both vertical and horizontal reconciliation. The wonderful mercy of God, the said of God, is his bone-deep commitment to saving you. Saving you from your sin and brokenness for himself and for each other. Saving you from sin and for the church. Being saved by Jesus isn't an individual thing. Or you've been saved to a different Jesus. You have come now into a diverse family. The, the historic division between Jew and Gentile being broken down in the cross is huge, right? It says the hostility between those groups was put to death by Jesus. How was it put to death? By Jesus being put to death. The hostility was killed as Jesus was killed. But that means there was hostility between Jew and Gentile. And if the hostility between Jew and Gentile can be broken down, then the hostility between Jew and Gentile today and between Gentile and Gentile today can be broken down by the blood of Jesus. Racism, sexism, class divisions, ethnic hatred... All are a part of what it means to be dead in sin. All of it was crucified by Jesus on the cross and has no place in the church. And it has no place in the church, not because we're not those kind of people, we're good church people. No, we are those kind of people. But God. But God. God has been merciful to us. God has saved us from our sin and our brokenness. And now he has brought us into this new family in which the divisions of the world are not the primary thing. The unity of Jesus is the primary thing. Now that doesn't mean all of our distinctions become excluded, right? We already talked about the Trinity the Father and Son are united, and the Father is not the Son. If we're going to be a diverse people, you can't come here and say, well, I'm going to come and we're going to become like this third thing where I'm going to come and I'm going to bring part of myself, and you come and you bring part of yourself. No, it comes with you bringing all of yourself. Your culture, your heritage, your background, your race and ethnicity, all of it is part of the divine stamp upon you. And it's necessary for us. So you come as your full self here. 
We need your full self here. All of us need to come and be ourselves as created by God and redeemed by Jesus to be a part of this diverse family. What happens when the merciful triune God enters a broken, divided, sinful people? What happens is but God. God shows up bringing salvation to those who are dead in sin, bringing unity around the person of Jesus, bringing the diversity of the community in which we live and making the church. So when we say we are seeking to be a diverse people saved by Jesus, what we mean is come as you are in all you are and experience and encounter the merciful has said of God. The merciful, steadfast, covenant love of God. So if you're here this morning and you're not sure what it means to be saved by Jesus and you're wrestling through that and you have your doubts and you're struggling, but you feel the prompting of God, pursue that. Cry out to him. Say, God, show me who you are. I can't make my heart open itself. Show me who you are. And he will come in faithfulness and show you his merciful love and save you from your sin. And if you're here today and you're like, I love being saved by Jesus. I'm just not so keen on being saved to the church. Then come and spend some time with King Jesus. Yesterday, we got to celebrate a wonderful City Hope wedding with Rome and Laura. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. So much fun. And my favorite part of a wedding is watching the groom's face as the bride comes down. And Rome lost it. I mean, he was just bawling. I told him he was. And he was like, I got this. I got this. And then he was just weeping, like, you know, like, big time. It was awesome. And the reason I love that is because I imagine... That's what the Lord Jesus feels every time he looks at us. He's just waiting in anticipation for that door to open and for us to be ushered into the kingdom because he loves you dearly. You know what that means, though? You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. You want to go hang out with Rome right now and talk about Laura? It's not going to go well, right? You can't love Jesus and not love his bride. And the word tells us what his bride looks like. And so if you're struggling with figuring out what does it mean for us to be a diverse people, I I don't know. I don't know if I want to be around people not like me. Then you got to wrestle with Jesus. Because if he saved you, he saved you vertically and horizontally. You're not alone. You don't get to choose the family you are born into, and you don't get to choose this family either. Jesus brings you into this family, and it's his bride, not yours. So we got to wrestle with that. we got to be honest about where we are, and it's okay to be honest with where you are because God is rich in mercy. And the only way we do that is by wrestling through those things together. So when we say each and every week we are seeking to be a diverse people saved by Jesus, it's because the triune God of the universe is rich in hesed, faithful, 
merciful, loyal, unfailing kindness and love. And He has come in the person of His Son, Jesus, to save, to snatch up from death those who are broken and sinful from every tribe, from every people, from every language, and from every nation, and to save them for an everlasting kingdom which will have no end. Because the world is divided and broken and overwhelming and it seems like it's coming apart at the seams. But God. Let's pray. God, we're overwhelmed by your mercy. We're also overwhelmed by the brokenness around us. God, every time we look at the brokenness around us, would you remind us of your faithful, loyal love and mercy? That we would be more overwhelmed by your merciful love than the brokenness around us. That every time we are reminded of our sin, every time Satan tempts us to doubt and accuses us, that we would turn and look 